0: All right, guys, welcome. We see there's a hundred and, oh, actually my bad. I see there's 38 different devices on right now and a lot more people will be joining us soon. Uh, Just in case anyone does not know, we can have as many as nine people on the screen at once. So right now there's three slots open, so don't be shy. We love to see your faces as well. Um, So I'm just gonna introduce Michael then pray then Michael's gonna get started. Uh, So it's pretty interesting I'm introducing Michael. We are both actually in the same place. We're both in Minneapolis holding it down. Um, Michael, obviously he has like, almost like two brains all the wisdom and knowledge he has. Um, Some of y'all may know, a lot of y'all may not know. Michael used to teach history. So obviously you're a history teacher. you, You gotta know a lot of information. There's a good chance most of you guys on this call have probably read at least one or two of his books. And if you haven't, it's almost guaranteed your church probably went through at least a couple of his books. You know, Michael's really big on the race and culture and diversity in our churches. And literally, Michael has taught all over the world, you know, like not even just America, like all over the world. He has taught. He's raised up and helped a lot of people out over the years. I'm sure his phone is always blowing up because of different things going on, especially in 2020. Uh, you guys are in for a treat because with everything that's happened this year with racial, racial injustices, and uh, there's a. a we're about to, there's an election coming up where the vote starts next month. This is very uh, applicable to what's going on right now in the world. So you guys are really in for a treat. I don't even know exactly how many books Michael has written. He's, wrote, he's written a lot of books. Recently, Escaping the Beast, uh, All Things to All People, uh, The Race and the Culture, a book he wrote a couple years ago as well. So he has a lot of great books. We definitely want to encourage you guys, check out his books, read his books. They're life-changing. It's going to help you get a perspective maybe you haven't had before. Just tying in about what role do we play and you guys are in for a treat today. And as well as Michael has written a lot of books, he also likes to run. He has two kids, a great wife as well. Um, So I definitely wanna encourage you guys to take a lot of notes from what Michael is gonna say. Uh, You guys are really in for a special time today. And also just another compliment that Michael has done. That he's very humble about. You know, Michael has, he's offered a lot of Just incredible things Michael has done over the years. So, with that, I will pray and then I'll hand over to Michael. Uh, thank you, God, for bringing all of us here this afternoon on this call, guy. I pray that people get a lot of stuff from Michael's lesson and people really marinate on what he's gonna say and how this applies to their life. And I'm sure after this call, some people will be called to action, God. Pray that you continue to use uh, Michael in a great way, God. Speak through him, speak through the Spirit. I um, pray that awesome things come from this lesson, God. And I know there's going to be a lot of notes, a lot of wisdom that's going to be shared, God. Pray that people listen attentively and have discussions as well after this lesson, God. We love you so much. It's a privilege to be here and listen to Michael speak. In your son, in Jesus, name we pray. Amen.
1: Amen. Um, it, it is good to be with you all. It's really good to see the power of God on display because I don't know what Rio was gonna share last that I did, but somehow there was some mighty feedback that came in. And uh I think none of us heard it until the the very last words it stopped and then he said, so that's what Michael Burns has done. Um and so God made sure that nobody heard uh whatever it was that real is that true did it did it beep it out for all of you too or was that just me? Yeah, nobody oh. heard it. See, Rio, ha. the power of God. Whatever, whatever shade you were trying to throw at me, uh, God stepped in. So, uh, Amen. Um, no, but it, it is. It, it's crazy to see some of you on here that I, I think I taught in like Kingdom Kids. When you were like three years old and stuff and now you're in the campus conference kind of makes me feel old. Um, I remember back when we led campus ministry in Milwaukee, <clears throat> Elijah was a baby um, and now he's a senior in high school and will be in campus next year so it's just um, it's good to see so many uh, of you young folks. Uh, there is like Rio said there's three more slots on the screen so please uh, feel free to jump on there if you want. It's it's uh, good to be able to see some faces um, as as I teach, and so uh, love to see your face. Um, oh, there's a there's a whole group of people. Oh, yeah, right. yeah. Ooh, Detroit. That is Detroit, right? I'm not having a <laughs> freeze here. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, i want to make sure I wasn't like somewhere else, and I'm saying you know. Anyways. Um, so, you know, I don't know if you guys have heard, but there's an election coming up in a few days, and uh, it's, uh, it's made the news every so often, and, you know, topics of uh, politics have come to the forefront, um, and it's, you know, been a crazy sort of overlap and mix uh, for me in having written a book on race, written a couple books on culture and then written a book on politics that came out in July. This has been an interesting summer. Um, and, and one where everybody suddenly wants to talk about uh, all of those issues. And I, I do actually remember there was a brief time there at the beginning of the pandemic where I was like, man, I think I can just sit back and get some like, you know, sabbatical time in almost during this pandemic and and relax. And then you, uh, you know, Pandora's box opened up and everything broke loose and uh, it's been crazy. And and so it's just added uh, to that confusion. And so let me say at the beginning, what I'm going to try to talk about here today is some broad strokes, some principles and ideas that maybe we can take and, and apply as as we start to think uh, through these things. And, you know, when you have 45 minutes, we're not going to be able to get into a lot of nitty gritty and specifics uh, and things of that nature, but I'm gonna try to give us a a broad direction uh, that will help. If you wanna get more into specifics, then uh, given the time limitations here, the only thing I can say is I, I do have the book, I have a copy here, Escaping the Beast, Politics, Allegiance and Kingdom. And we go through some of what we're gonna talk about here today. Uh, but then it really talks about how we can engage in the world. We're not talking about let's just pull out of the world and ignore all the issues. But how do we engage in the kingdom of God? And and after figuring out what the kingdom of God is and how we relate with the world, uh, we get into specifics of what that might look like to have a kingdom approach to, uh, you know, everything from the LGBTQ community to environmental issues uh, sanctity of life, death penalty abortion, um, racial justice, economic justice, uh, and, and and a bunch more where we get specifically in and and talk about what it will look like. But let me kind of step uh, step back out and zoom out into the bigger picture here today. And I want to start in matthew twenty two. and in, in matthew twenty two, we see this incredible scene of a political conflict going on in the first century. Oftentimes we read scripture and we just think in terms of, you know, we spiritualize it and we read it for some spiritual truths. And we forget that these are real people with real situations and real life and real political arguments and intrigue going on and divisions and factions. And the first century world was easily as divided and focused on politics as we are today and probably more so, uh, arguably. They they had all sorts of things uh, that were looming and going on. And when we are like, oh, I think the world might be ending. Everything's so bad this year. You know, people from the time of the bubonic plague and from the time of the first century and at different points in history kind of would look and laugh and be like, oh, those are your issues, really? And you think, you know, and it's not to minimize and say these aren't real things and cause us to really wrestle. Um, But people have faced, you know, times like this before. And the first century is a, a very complex time and very politically divided. And so in verse 15, it says, the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. So you know, this is not something new into politics. People try to trap people, they try to get you to say something, it's gotcha politics. It's oh, uh, we're gonna we're gonna catch him in a verbal trap, you know, ask him a question that he can't answer. And it says they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. The Herodians and the Pharisees were not exactly uh, you know, best of friends, and yet they're partnering, you know, strange times make for strange allies by jesus so they're going to partner together and go after it and it says teacher they said we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of god in accordance with the truth i mean they are kissing up to him right now they're 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 laying a trap here right they're they're up to something you aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are Tell us then, now they're going to try to act all innocent here, right? Oh, we just think you're great. Tell us, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Here's a hand grenade thrown into the middle of uh, a mixed crowd. Man, you could start a riot with this question. This is all kinds of intrigue and issue going on. You got you get all kinds of different perspectives and for Jesus and they know this there's no way to answer this question and not get people mad at him there's just there's just no way if he says you know yes you should pay your taxes to caesar if he just gives that answer man a a, a riot's going to start he has taken he's taken a side he's taken the side of the rich and the powerful the oppressor he's a traitor to his people he's put political gain and and political power and empire ahead of you know the people of god he he has abandoned them he is certainly no messiah you know he can't give that answer and if he says, no, don't pay your taxes to Caesar. Well, now he's taken sides and he's taken the side of the rebels, the the the, the side of uh, insurgents. He's he's taken the side of instability. He's fighting against the, the government that's keeping them relatively safe and keeping them, uh, you know, in a position of, of comfort. He can't take that side. He, if he says no, he's treasonous to Rome. They can put him on the cross rightfully as a rebel. And he would have, you know been guilty in that sense. There's no way that he can answer that question. And that's what the world will try to do. They want to force us to take a side. Say who you're with, Say who you're against. What side are you supporting? And we've we've gone as a country more and more with that, where we have divided, and, and it's now, it's politics are no longer just uh, differences of wisdom and opinion and how we run the government. Politics have now become a god in our country. They have it has become a religion in and of itself, and and so that's a challenge because it wants us to take a side. Caesar empire wants our allegiance and it will do whatever it can to get it, but it wants us, you know, pick a side, state your case. And then you're gonna have friends and you're gonna have enemies. And you're gonna get to a point where you give your allegiance to one side or the other. And then you're only gonna wanna be around those friends and not the enemies. Cause they're the ones that tell you what you wanna hear and stroke your ego and reaffirm your worldview and make you feel okay about it and and it's just too stressful to engage with the enemy and that's what division does pick a side who you should we pay taxes to caesar or not where are you going to stand publicly don't don't be a coward jesus say it do it take a stand and so jesus has no choice but knowing their evil intent he said you hypocrites. Why are you trying to trap me? So the first thing Jesus does is, I'm going to call both sides hypocrites. You're hypocrites. You're all hypocrites. Let me point out your hypocrisy. Let me say it like it is. That's one of the problems when we start to divide politically is we see the other side as the maniacs and the hypocrites and not the side we support. We give them a pass. And we start to take the the homer approach in sports you know what a homer is where you support your team no matter what they do the calls are always against them they were always in the right they always should have won that game right and the other team well you know if the call goes against your team it's a good call if the call goes against or if it goes for your team it's a good call if it goes against your team it's a bad call and we start to apply that into the political world and we we only want to hear good things about our side, and we we dismiss it, and we become hypocrites. And Jesus exposes that. And then it goes further. He says, show me the coin used to pay the tax. So they brought him a denarius. Now, I think an astute reader in the first century would kind of get the humor in this and get what Jesus just, he just turned the trap. Because if you're in the temple grounds where you should have no graven image before God and it's against the Jewish law, and he says, bring me this coin with Caesar's image on it, and they have one on the temple grounds, they're not supposed to do that. They're not. They're, they're violating God's law. So Jesus has exposed them as hypocrites. He called them hypocrites, and then he exposes them as hypocrites. Because he's not taking a side. They're demanding that he take a side. He's going to present a new option. Whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Now, what did he say here? Is it just that he said, Hey, you know what, pay your taxes and go to church. I don't think that's what he's saying. That wouldn't be that revolutionary. And notice in the the next verse, it says, when they heard this, they were amazed. And so they left him and went away. What did he say to their ears that was so amazing? What did he say to blow up the question? Because they wanted him to declare an allegiance. They wanted him to pick a side. And he presents an entirely new way. What is that way? Well, in the book of Revelation, and if you're reading your Bible, if you've got it open, you can turn over to Revelation chapter 5. But in that book, John says, I'm going to show you, and this is chapter 1. He says, I'm going to show you the revelation about Jesus Christ in signs And symbols. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to describe to you the vision that I had. And so it's very symbolic. And in chapter four, um, he's he says he has his vision and he went into the throne room. He can see the throne room of God, and there are four living creatures that kind of represent all of creation, and they're circling around God the way creation should, praising him and singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then in chapter five. He says, then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. What's in that scroll? Well, if we're gonna shorthand it, it's the solution to all the problems of humanity. It's, it solves the problems of the world, the separation between God and man, the division, the hate, the violence, the war, All of the sin that we have, think of how much evil there is in the world right now. Right now, as we sit here on this call, it's very likely that someone somewhere in the world is being murdered right now. Somebody is being robbed right now. Somebody's identity is being stolen right now. A child is being abused right now. Someone is being taken into human trafficking right now there's so much division and hate and sin and John looks and he says in his right hand is a scroll with the answer to all of that with the answer to our division let me just see the scroll what would you do to see that scroll that would solve all the problems in the world oh man let me look but he says, then I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? And maybe John's mind begins to race. Uh, a, a righteous people, a great powerful leader, a, a Nebuchadnezzar, a, a Cyrus, a, a Alexander the Great, the you know, Pharaoh, Emperor, Caesar, somebody. But no one in heaven or on earth. Or under the earth, no one who's alive, no one who's ever lived, not even the angels, could open the scroll or even look inside. How crushing. And John says, I began to weep and weep. That's an appropriate response, isn't it? With that much? Right there? And no one can access it? Then, just when all seems lost, he says, one of the elders said to me, see, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and it's seven seals. Oh, yes, John must be thinking. That makes sense. A lion. Do you know how fierce lions are? How powerful lions are? How impressive lions are? It must be a lion of a man. He must be jacked and powerful and mighty to do what none of these other great rulers and peoples could do. Yes, we need a lion. But then there's a pattern in Revelation where John will hear something, he will turn to look, and when he looks, he sees something other than what he heard. So he's told that there is a lion, but when he looks, what does he see? He says then I saw, a lamb, looking as if it had been slain. It's A bloody lamb. This lamb lost. This lamb has been killed. This lamb is the solution to the problems in the world? Are you kidding me? I'm sure there's a moment where John is like, can we get that lion back in here? It's not, it can't be that impressive at first glance. And there's a comparison and contrast that runs throughout the book of revelation that we're supposed to see see god has his lamb and the dragon has his version the dragon has a beast in chapter 13 of revelation the beast arrives and the beast has horns and heads and crowns everywhere all these things in the first century These are all symbols of power, of strength, of might. And we might look and go, this beast sounds horrible. It sounds monstrous. But that's not the intended uh, symbol going on here. You see this beast, and what is the response? The people, they're not repulsed. They look in chapter 13, and they go, who is like the beast? Who can make war against the beast? That's the kind of leader we need, one with power, One with strength, one that will give us security, that will keep our enemies at bay, that will make our borders secure, that will bring us economic prosperity, that will, you know, send a shiver into the hearts of our enemies. That's the kind of leader that we need. That's what we want, the beast. And they begin to worship the beast. And it says because they were worshiping the beast, they were worshiping the dragon. Although I don't think they knew that. So we have this beast. Death bounces off this beast. That's how powerful he is. This is far more impressive. And the people begin to trust and worship the beast. This is what can solve the problems. The lamb, uh, yeah, okay. You know, the lamb maybe can get us to heaven, can forgive our sins, but certainly not strong enough We forget that there's a lion inside this lamb, that it has a true power. And that's the message of the book of Revelation is this lamb really is the solution to the problems of the world, that it's not the beast. It's not political power that will not get it done. In chapter 12, we get this picture of the people of the Messiah who overcome their enemies through the word of their testimony and the blood of the lamb. And that's it. In chapter 19, symbolically, we see all the kings and armies of the world amassed against the rider on the white horse. So it's some scene out of Avengers Endgame. All the armies are amassing. And here comes this rider on the white horse. And he defeats all his enemies. But if you read chapter 19, there's no actual physical battle. It says he has two things. He has A sword that comes from his mouth, which is the word of God, and a robe dipped in blood, which is the blood of the lamb. How does he overcome his enemies? Through the word of God and sacrifice. And Jesus said this way of the lamb is a message of revelation. It does win. It does change things. It doesn't look impressive. And if you want to follow me and represent me, that's the path you're going to take. We can so easily marginalize and push to the side. Oh, we don't get rid of the lamb. We don't get rid of God. But we do what Ahaz did in 2 Kings 16. In 2 Kings 16, Ahaz, the king of Judah, is walking around Assyria. And he's hanging out with Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria. And he sees the pagan altar that they have there. And he goes, oh, that's so much more impressive than the one we have back at the temple. I love that one. Can I get a blueprint of that? And he makes a blueprint. He sends it back to Jerusalem and has a pagan altar built and put in the temple. But he doesn't get rid of God's altar. He just moves it over to the side and puts the pagan one next to it. And he says, we'll use both. I'll, we'll sacrifice on both the pagan altar and God's altar. It's the best of both worlds. We can We can do both. But it does not please God because split allegiance is no allegiance at all. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that when people were, reminds them that when they were preparing to be baptized, calling on the name of the Lord, in verse 13, he says in verse 9, you declare with your mouth. That Jesus is Lord. That might sound like a really spiritual phrase to our ears. But in the first century, the common saying was Caesar is Lord. Caesar is the one that will solve the problems of the world. Caesar is uh, Caesar and Rome were, were the one that were going to bring peace on earth and goodwill toward men. They went out and they declared, the, the, the Greek word at the time was the euangelion. It was a declaration about good news about Caesar, some proclamation about the king. And that word euangelion is translated good news or gospel. So the Christians took this Roman word and said, oh, no, the real good news is about Jesus. Jesus is the real king. Jesus is the real Lord. You come to allegiance in Jesus in Acts 17, 7. The people are losing their minds because they say they are are claiming, these men, that there is another king and that Caesar is not king. See, Rome had no problem with Christians simply declaring a new religion or that there was a new God. They had plenty of room for new gods in their pantheon. The problem was Jesus was a rival to Caesar. He was king of a new kingdom. He was calling the allegiance of people away from Rome, away from politics and nationalism and ideology and to a new allegiance. And so if we want to hear the phrase, Jesus is Lord, with the same sense of challenge and subversion that they did in the first century, we might say something like, and I'm not advocating that we change the formula i'm just saying we would maybe say something like i pledge allegiance to jesus and his kingdom alone that's what it's about many of us when we studied the bible we sat down and we challenged sin in our lives we looked at what it would what what it would mean to give up greed what would it mean for us to give up lust what would it mean to give up partying and hanging out and selfish indulgence and all of those things but what we maybe failed to analyze was the phrase jesus is lord do i have these allegiances political national cultural ethnic materialistic economic do i trust in other things in these big areas have i reduced christianity the kingdom down to this small little spiritual compartment that then I put inside, well, this is what's going to help me get to heaven one day and have my sins forgiven. But over here, this altar, that's the one where, I, you know, I've got to do my civic duty and I've got to trust and I've got to give my allegiance. I'm not saying it's wrong to vote and engage as a citizen. We're talking here about allegiance, about what we trust, about what we give our identity to what we think will solve the problems of the world. You know what I get really passionate about? The things that I worship, that I think will really solve the problems in the world. Why would I get passionate about things that are of a temporary nature, but don't have the true solutions anyways? Think about this. We have two primary choices for president next week, right? I think it's next week, week and a half, whatever. Two primary choices. How fired up would you be if they suddenly said, oh, there's a third choice. Jesus Christ has come back and he's running for president of the United States and you can vote for him on November 3rd. Wouldn't he be able to solve everything? I mean, wouldn't he be better than what we have? Couldn't he fix the problems of the world? And yet... When he was in the wilderness, in Matthew 4, Satan comes to him and says, if you just bow down to me, I'll make you king over all the nations. You can be emperor of the whole world. Mission accomplished. Now, all he's doing is recognizing that Satan is The prince of the dominion of darkness, of the kingdoms of the present age. He already was that. It's just acknowledging that. But you can be emperor. You can solve all the uh, poverty and hunger and wars and violence. You can do all that. You'll have all the political power in the world, Jesus. Here you go. But Jesus refuses and rejects the throne room of empire. He won't be king. They keep trying to make him king. Pilate asks him on his last night, aren't you a king? And in essence, Jesus says, I am, but not the kind of king you think. I have a whole nother sort of kingdom. And he's not just saying this is a spiritual thing. This is a real kingdom. But it's a whole nother alternative from what the world can offer. Pick a side, Jesus. Should we pay taxes or not? Jesus says, I got a different way. Jesus didn't go with the throne room of empire because he knew that there was something far more powerful than all the political power and might in the world. It was the kingdom of God. Jesus believed that the kingdom of God would be more effective in actually bringing about change than if he had all the political power in the world. And he went the way, instead of the way of the purple robe and crown, he went the way of the suffering servant. The slain lamb, self-sacrifice. And said, if you want to change the world, this is how you do it. You start laying your life down. It's not that we don't engage. It's that we don't engage in the same way the world does. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, we do not use the weapons of the world. We fight, but not with the weapons of the world. The kingdom was a new option it was a new way of living it was a renewed humanity that's what the early christians believed this is god stepping in and doing something that was not previously available and there jesus is standing in the middle of the temple grounds choose do we pay taxes or not power or your people which one are you going to choose and Jesus says, "Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's." And he asks, "Whose image is on this coin?" And they say, "Caesar's." Now, what he's appealing to, and they would have understood this, going all the way back to Genesis one, when God created the heavens and the earth, and He He decided to make man and woman, male and female. He says, let us make man in our image. And he created them male and female in his image. That word is Selem. It means idol or image or statue. And it appealed to a common understanding in the first century, which is when pagans would finish a temple, they would fill it with trees and plants and flowers and make it kind of look like a creation. That temple represented the territory that the God ruled over. And they would take a statue of that God and put it in the temple. And that statue was the image of that God. It represented the presence, the power, the authority of that God. It represented the will of that God. It represented his rule over his territory. And it, it mediated his rule in his territory. And Moses, in writing Genesis 1, says, I'm going to use that imagery so that you can understand what God was doing when he created the world. You see, he created the whole world. His temple is not just a building built by human hands. It's the entire world. And he put his own statue in there, his own Selem. It's human beings. We are the image bearers. We are the mediators of his presence and his will over his territory, showing the world what it looks like to live with God as king. And so as we enter into Christ and we are being renewed in the image of God, we become once again the image bearers, showing the world how to live a different way, how human beings were supposed to live on the world, not through divided means with the only status we can have as political power to fix things. We have access to a whole new solution. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. If this coin represents the power and presence and the solutions of Caesar, if this represents what he can do in the world, then give him his little coin. But whose image is imprinted on you? To whom do you belong? Who should you be representing? Who should you be living for? Whose presence and power should you be mediating and showing to the world? Give to God what is God's. Be salt and light and a city on a hill. Now, the one thing that those three things have in common is that you know when they're all present. There's no mistaking. When salt is put on a dish, there's no mistaking when light enters a room and there's no mistaking when you see a city on a hill from a distance. So what does it look like to be these image bearers, to bear salt and light in politically divided times? What does it look like to give to God what is God's? See, Jesus presented a third option, a new way. That's why they were so amazed. What does it look like? Well, I think there's a few quick things I want to mention here. Number one, it means being good news for the marginalized. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19, when Jesus gives his first public sermon and he's explaining the kingdom of God, he says the kingdom of God is good news for the poor, the oppressed, the blind, the prisoner. In other words, the marginalized those who have been cast out of society, those that are on the downside. He doesn't demonize them. We're not talking about how they got there, but they are on the bottom. And the the kingdom is for those people. It's for the poor in spirit. It's for the mourners. It's for the, the ones that everybody would think they've been cut off by God. They have no chance. They have no power. They have nothing impressive. The kingdom stands with those people. We stand for the marginalized. That should be the instinct of the kingdom of God. Sinners flocked to Jesus. The poor flocked to the early church. Who's flocking to us? Are we known for standing with the marginalized? There's an incident in the early church where they were kicked out of the christians were kicked out of a roman city by a governor and the poor of that city rioted and demanded that the christians be let back in because they were the only ones caring for them if we were all kicked out of our cities would anybody know do we stand up as the kingdom of god do we look like a new way to live to be human See, when we give our political allegiances or our national allegiances, we start to look just like everybody else in the world. We just look like a nationalistic group or a a political group or whatever. If our solutions and our rhetoric and our actions look just like the world's, then what's the point of the kingdom of God? It's good news for the marginalized and that will leave us realizing that in our current situation there is no one group that has a consistent kingdom approach to the marginalized there is no one group that stands up for the poor the prisoner uh those treated unjustly racially the unborn we might overlap at times with one side of the world's arguments or the other, but we have to be the kingdom and not worry about these political allegiances. We have to be a new option with a new way. Number two, if we follow Jesus, we will be persecuted. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, It says, you, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, I'm not talking about persecution of like Being contradicted or disagreed with. I'm talking about radical, that was 2 Timothy 3 10 through 12. I'm talking about radical sense of the world rejecting us, persecuting Christians. Paul says if you are following Jesus, you will be persecuted. If we truly stood up for the poor and the marginalized, we will be persecuted by the powerful. There's no question. If we stand up and love our enemies, which will be our next point, we will be persecuted. Can you imagine living in a country where you say, you know, I don't deny the right of this nation of the present age to go to war. But as people of the kingdom of God, it's our job to love our enemies. You think that's not going to get persecution? I think if we really were following Jesus, we would be persecuted. The early church for the first three centuries absolutely was. Are we persecuted? And if not, why not? Is it because perhaps we shrunk down the kingdom and compartmentalized it as a spiritual thing, and then we leave the nations and the politics to solve the big problems of the world? It's not what the kingdom is supposed to be. It's supposed to be an entirely new way for humans to live and say, come join us. This is a new way. In every aspect of life. Number three. I alluded to it. Being salt and light means. We will love our enemies. Jesus describes this in Matthew 5. 38 through 48. And in verses 43 and 48. In particular. He goes on. He says you know you, you've heard it said. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you. Love your enemy. Pray, bless those who persecute you. So, this is what God does. God sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you want to be children of your Father in heaven, this is how you're going to live in the world. You only want to get along with those who agree with you or like you. You only want to talk with those who agree or like you. He says, even the pagans can do that. And in Matthew 5, verse 48, he says, therefore, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Well, what does he mean there? We got to be perfect? Well, the the Greek word there is teleos. And it means uh, complete. All encompassing. And so he's saying God is complete in loving everyone, in loving his enemies. There is no one outside of God's love. And so there should not be... With us. One of the realities of life is when we began to stand up for the marginalized and speak out for the oppressed and against injustice, it's a very short trip to begin to hate the oppressor. To begin to, oh, they're evil and they're uh they're, he's an idiot and they're monsters and they're you can't even be a Christian and support that. And how do dare those people? Uh, because when we stand up against injustice there will be a natural pull to hate the oppressor but jesus says that's not so with us that's not how we're going to do it this is a new way to live this is a new way to respond to the world and if you go well, that's not fair that's not just that's not right what is more unfair than the cross of jesus christ and yet jesus says if you want to follow me pick up your cross this is how we're going to roll this is how we're going to do it loving enemies is really hard but it's how we show we're different the world can't figure that out we can number four we reject power well how do we do that man the world's all about power that's how you make change it's the beast that's what will get things done you got to have power you got to get laws passed you got to force people you got to legislate morality you got to show people how does that get people any closer to the kingdom of god that's the challenge of the kingdom of god the minute you begin to force it or enforce it or legislate it on people it stops being the kingdom because it's no longer a choice to lay down your life for others that's what the kingdom is all we can do is live out this radical new way of life and invite people to it And we get engaged in the world. We don't just go off in some commune and say, let's all be comfortable and live together, laying our lives down for one another. That's not the kingdom either. We're salt and light. We're there. We're in it. We're in the problems of the world, addressing them, but not using the weapons of the world, using the weapons of the kingdom. Power is the weapon of the world. In Matthew chapter 20, Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 to 28. Jesus says, you know, the pagans lord power over one another. Not so with you. That's not how we're going to do it in the kingdom of God. You will be a servant to all. You will sacrifice. If you want to be first, you will be asked. You will lay your life down. This is what it looks like. You have power under. You live for the benefit of others. You sacrifice for them. That's the kingdom of God. It's not about power. That's a different way of living. And there's an instinct that goes, no, but that's not going to change anything. That's the call of the beast. You got to have power to make change. But does it? There's been power in the world. People have been fighting over power and exchanging hands for thousands of years. You know what's really made change? The kingdom of God. Martin Luther King Jr., It would be hard to point to anybody in the last 100 years that has made more change in the world than he has. And he had no power. He didn't do it through power. He did it through self-sacrifice. He followed the method of Jesus. It's laying down our lives. It's being the kingdom that makes change. The final one I want to mention here, the final point is we will be an alternate society that doesn't reflect the world. Now, what I mean is this, if we call people and say, man, join the kingdom, become part of the kingdom. The kingdom is what will make real change in the world. But then we've reduced the kingdom down to just this little spiritual compartment that really doesn't address the issues of the world. You guys will get fed up with that real quick. You'll see through that. This doesn't do anything. What are we change I got to go out and get involved in these other groups to make changes. It's not because those other groups have real power to make change. It's because the kingdom has not been the kingdom. We've reduced it down, we've shrunk it. We haven't addressed the totality of life with the way of the Lamb. We've not been discipled by the suffering servant. We've been discipled by the way of the world. And we've shrunk it down. The early church. When at Pentecost, when they were baptized, what's one of the first actions they took? They took their surplus, gave it to the apostles, and they gave to anyone who was in need. They started taking up regular collections for the widows and orphans and the poor and the marginalized. These weren't just benevolent collections. They reordered their economy. And the world literally looked for the next 300 years and was like, these people are insane. They, you, you can rip them off because if you are part of their community, they just make sure you're not poor. They have no poor among them. And they even take care of our poor. And they don't have any rich either because they were willingly living a different reality, a different economy. It looked different. They addressed the problem of economic injustice and poverty within the Christian community, within the kingdom, and then said, come live this way. Come join us. And they would go out and help the poor, but not as a way to solve all of the poverty in the world. They knew they couldn't do that. Jesus said, you'll always have the poor among you. When you engage in the problem of the present age, it's not because we think we can fix all those problems. It's to point people, it's to give them a small sample of the way of life that we should have back over here. When we're just giving donations to the poor, but we're not living out a different economic reality, we're giving samples when the meal is not there. What does that accomplish? I challenge you guys, your generation, to think bigger, to envision what the kingdom would look like. I'm not an economist, and this is just one small slice economy. What does it look like to live the kingdom out in a new economy? What does it look like to live the kingdom out in a new social order? What does it look like to live out the kingdom uh from an environmental perspective? What will that look like? And in first in 1 Corinthians Paul is challenging the world or the church rather and he says, "You know what? You know what's causing all these divisions that he's addressing in Corinthians? You're mirroring the world because you're not examining what's going on what's coming into the church and in chapter 11 he says here's what happens when you get together and take the lord's supper you got rich folks who are christians and without thinking about it they do what rich folks do they have leisure time they come to their big estates they hang out they have plenty of food and wine they're having a party and then well you know there's nothing we can do about it some of our folks are poor and enslaved and they got to work all day and they don't really have any food or wine that they can bring and so they come and they'll be in the other room with the poor people and the low status people because that's just how it works the rich folks are in one room the low people are in another uh powerful here unpowerful over here and we take communion and paul says that's not even communion you're taking you're mirroring the world and in chapter 12, he says, look, this is not how the body works. And in verses 21 to 26, and we, we're running out of time, so I can't go into it. But basically, he says, you've got to look at who is marginalized in the world. Who is, you know, what are the, the inequities, the, the racial, racial housing segregations, the injustices in the justice system, the inequities in education and ec- economy. And we got to make sure that they're not just mirrored in the world. If the world divides by race in every major city and lives in different neighborhoods, rich white folks over here and poor people of color over here, what is the church doing to address that? Or are we just mirroring that same issue and the church looks pretty much the same? He says, we treat with special honor those who have no honor or status in the world. And those who are presentable in the world, they need no special treatment. That's not favoritism. That's making sure that the divisions of the world don't come into the church. The kingdom of God, if we're going to be salt and light, is good news for the marginalized. It's knowing that we will be persecuted, it's loving our enemies, rejecting power, and being an alternate kingdom. Um, I'm going to stop there, you guys. As I said, This is the big stroke, sort of ways to think. It doesn't answer all the questions. It might raise more questions than it answers. Um, But if you want to dig in further, if you want to look at maybe some of those specifics, what might this look like? uh, You can get Escaping the Beast, but please, I challenge your generation. My generation needs you to step up. We need you to be creative and show us how to be the kingdom in this present age. Um, we need you, and so go out, study it out, think about it, and be the kingdom. Uh, Rio, I'm going to turn it back over to you. I, I, we're
0: done right now at twelve thirty. Is that yeah, right? Yeah. So no, and thanks so a lot, Michael. Yeah. So things? if if you want to, you could take a we could have. If you want to, you can take maybe a couple responses, not too many. Um, but I just want to respond. Great job, Michael. Lessons, great points. Uh, we definitely got some scriptures in the chat. Uh, feel free to, you know, yeah, give Michael a hand wherever you're at. <laughs> Great job, Michael. Uh, feel free if you have, maybe you can take a couple questions, not too many. If you have a question, we would like for you to be on screen. Um, but you can put it in the chat first if you have a question. We may take maybe a few, maybe three to five, but not too long. Um, but feel free, like Michael said, he got Escaping the Beats, he got other books. And maybe, Michael, you can put your email, maybe a contact if they wanted to send you more information as well. But thanks a lot, Michael. We appreciate
1: it. Yeah, I'm, I'm on Facebook. I can I can put my email in there, but I, I can't honestly promise that uh, I'm going to be able to personally correspond with everybody. I'll do my best, but uh, I can get pretty swamped. So I I, I will give it. Um, and you can write me or you can hit me on Facebook. Although I know most of you are like, Facebook's for old people. I get that. Um, you know, so if you're not on Facebook, uh,
0: I do have Instagram and stuff, but I don't use it. So, much. Are, Michael, did you have a time for maybe just a couple, couple questions on my heading? Yeah. yeah so so that. Guys, if, if you want to one stay around, so we done. are. Wait, one second. So we are done with this session. So, but if you have a question, maybe we get a few responses before we wrap up, but lunch is transitions in person or. You got something else? You can go, or you can hang around, and listen to a few responses. Maya, I know you said you had a question. You go ahead.
2: Yeah. Um. First off, thanks so much for this. I think it was super helpful. Um. I think I find myself like going from one end of the spectrum, right? So being like super. If I feel like I'm engaging in social, just the social issues or whatever you call it, the um like I just saw myself getting really angry, you know what I mean? And kind of like getting swept up into the emotions of it. Um, and then getting bitter towards, um, people who aren't minorities. Right. Um, or the other end of the spectrum where i just um, thinking that's like,
1: Good night. Sorry, a bird just flew in my well. window. Like this old bird just hit my window. I was
2: like, "It's okay." Um, go
1: ahead. Sorry.
2: And so I know you were saying how like the way for us to fight as disciples is sacrifice and the word of God. Um, and I I mean I first have to pray to even get my heart there right because that's hard. Um, but also like my question is what does that look like? practically, I guess. Um, if you have any examples like off the top of your head, um, like sure, quiet times, great, right? And praying for the people who are hurting right now, but like, I guess, what does sacrificing look like and then using the word of God um, for like this season now?
1: Sure. Um, and again, I, I try to go into that a lot more in the book but for instance um you know I, I believe that um you know there are a lot of examples I could give but uh, uh, maybe one that jumps to mind right here is uh, on the issue of abortion somebody might say well man i I do feel like standing up for the unborn but then what does that mean you know for mothers or whatever and I, I think it's a little weird that you know many christians say we're we're pro-life but then, We also are against, you know, things that will help, uh, especially poor people, stop from getting pregnant, you know, like contraceptives and having access to things like that. So I I think that can be inconsistent. But I think, uh, especially in the last 40 or 50 years, and I I document this in the book, um, many Christians ran to political power, but they genuinely wanted to end abortion. And so they tried to pass laws. They tried to get, let's get Supreme Court justices. Let's vote for this particular party because they, you know, will fight abortion. Um, and yet statistics show that who is president has virtually no impact on abortion rates. In fact, strangely, abortion rates go down when there are pro-abortion presidents in office. And so there are other factors at play, and I talk about in there. In the 19th century, abortion rates were actually astronomical. In some aspects, they were higher than they have been in the 20th century. And Kingdom Christians made a huge impact. They drastically reduced abortion rate, not through political power, not by passing laws, not by you know you're going to live by our morality. That they went in and they loved the poor, they helped counsel young women, they set up programs for the poor, they uh, helped with adoptions, they helped support mothers, they got them safe conditions. They uh, agreed that, hey, if you have this child, we'll help pay for this child's life, we'll help financially. They didn't, they didn't put it off on the government. A lot of times in, in this, you know, uh, in, in these times, will go and we'll say, man, I'm pro-life. I went in every four years and I pulled the lever and voted for a pro-life candidate, done all I can do. But that's not true. We haven't actually applied the kingdom. We haven't laid our lives down for the benefit of people financially, our time, our, you know, risk being demonized by, you know, whoever for taking these kind of stances. Um, you know, you start saying things like, man, we should help get contraceptives to the people who need it. We should uh, help the poor and get health care and things like that. You're going to create enemies. You're going to get persecuted. That's that's getting your hands dirty and getting involved with kingdom methods of loving and saying, you know, it's it's not our our arena. Now, there are times and I talk about this in the book where we may very carefully and with great discernment say, you know, We're gonna engage and help pass some laws and they're very careful and thought out from a kingdom perspective. But oftentimes what we've done is the church has just abdicated our role. We've just turned it over to money, power, hey, go do this, let me pull this lever. And we haven't sacrificed, we haven't gotten involved, we haven't shown people the kingdom, we haven't loved, we've shown judgment over mercy rather than mercy over judgment um you know and and the church and a lot of you guys know this you go in the campus what are christians known for judgment more than mercy um and it's because we've i think appealed to the wrong uh weapons and we haven't been really creative about weapons of the world um so that's just one example maybe
0: that yeah uh, helps start thinking that direction awesome. well, thanks a lot for the question are there any? Are there anyone else who has like a question? Maybe a couple more. We'll wrap up. Okay, so Rachel, I know you have a question. Um, so i a question. I would say you could go after Joshua, but I would say come on screen so you could so Mike could see you so you can ask a question to him as well. All right, go ahead, Joshua.
3: Okay, sweet. Well, it's just a small two, uh, two, two question um thing um so when one thing that the brothers and I have been struggling in our men um group in our in our campus ministry is um the i the uh, this also has to do with politics but mainly uh right now we've been dealing with a lot of like issues with um with just being kind of um not thick skinned when it comes to things like sports um like you know, there's rivalries in sports, right? You're either for uh, Michigan or you're for Ohio state, or, you know, um, you're either, you know, I'm a Patriots fan. So a lot of people in the, a lot of people in the uh, campus history don't like me because I'm well, Not don't like me, but like, you know, don't like my team choice because, you know, they're, I'm in Kansas. So go chiefs. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of that. Uh, my question in that is, um, what are ways where, as brothers, we can remain unified when we have so many different um, opinions and ideas and things that we like that conflict with each other? And my second question is, if any one of us who are disciples were to become president of the United States, the top office, how, how would you vision or how would you imagine us running the country
1: yeah so so the the first question is um i I think it comes down to allegiances and i think we we're so there's such a temptation for us to be divided in the church right now is because we've smuggled these other allegiances in with us we have national and political allegiances and we haven't studied them out and challenged those things um And so we can be all in the same church, but be way here based on our experiences and whether we grew up in a collective or individual culture, and that can lead us in very different directions of how we see problems and think solutions should be. Um, And so I I think as we um, focus on the allegiance to Jesus first and the kingdom perspective and way of living, we're still going to have differences. But instead of being out here, they're going to come in like this far. And I think then they're easier to bridge. And and I think part of it is understanding um, that when we engage in the issues of the world, there is first of all, I think most of our energy and really passion should be in how do we set up the kingdom as an alternate society and call people to that. And we've done very little in that arena. So how do we do that? We can all, you know, we can engage on those things and I think find a lot of agreement. Where it starts to get a little more dicey is when we go out in the world, how should we apply wisdom out there living as exiles for the life of the world? And I think we can look and say, man, that's just, those are variations of wisdom. We're doing the best we can out there. And if our allegiances are focused on the kingdom and we brought them in, then our divides are going to be much smaller and we can respect some of those differences and say, you know, these are temporary matters that we're dealing with. They're, they're important issues. But they're, they're temporary as far as, you know, how do I vote right now? Or how do we maybe, you know, encourage this thing? But I think we get divided because of those allegiances. And you talk about sports. If you were to say to me, you know, the the Islanders are the best hockey team in the world. I don't care because I don't really care about hockey. You can think that like whatever. Who cares about hockey? But if if you start telling me, you know, that, the Cowboys are the best team in football. Well, that's just heresy. That's ridiculous because <laughs> it's the Green Bay Packers. I mean, and so now I have an allegiance there. You're going to get a pushback. Um, and so I think a big part of it is checking our allegiances and understanding the difference between the passion of our allegiance and what we trust versus simply, hey, we're trying to apply some wisdom over here. Let's let's discuss this. Let's hear each other out and not fall into these, this, you know, sort of division and cancel culture of the world and, and that kind of thing. And then um, as far as a, a disciple being president, um, I talk about that type of thing more in the book. But I'll say this in the in the um, I believe in the middle of the third century, there was a Roman emperor named Philip the Arab who wanted to come to uh, his wife had become a Christian, I believe, if I remember right. And he'd wanted to come to like a worship gathering of Christians on Easter. And they said, yeah, you can, but you have to stand over here with the visitors um, and you don't get to take communion. They didn't let visitors take communion in the early centuries. And then when he wanted to be part of the church, they said, well, you would have to give up being emperor because Christians don't hold power over others. We don't we don't engage in that sort of thing. And so he did not become a Christian. In the next century, Constantine, the emperor, wanted to become a Christian, and they didn't lay down the same challenge, and they let him maintain uh, his status as emperor, and within a very short generation, people who for 300 years had been laying their lives down for others and loving their enemies were now marching into battle as soldiers of the Holy Roman Empire with crosses on their shields, killing their enemy, forcing people to convert to Christianity. Um, And so uh, my case would be, I'm not quite sure how a disciple would become president because living a kingdom life is different than the powers of the world. And I think in Romans 12, Paul lays out the life of Christians. The role of Christians is to love our enemies and be a whole different way. And then in chapter 13, he says, now that doesn't mean you overthrow the kingdoms of the world. They have their role. Um, you submit to them. God has given them the sword to limit evil and that kind of thing. Um, they have their role. We have ours. But, it, you know, it, it's difficult to engage in their role. The early church did not engage in politics. They didn't They didn't believe in it. They engaged in the world's issues, but as the kingdom and not exactly. through
0: political power. Thank
3: you.
0: Thank you, Joshua. So, Rachel, would you like to come on screen again uh, so I can add you? This will be the last question we'll be wrapping up, guys. She's still there, Rachel. I'm not sure if she's still there or not. But so, Michael, her question was: she may have left, I'm not sure. It was basically with so many challenges in the world. Any advice for how young people can find their focal? They how any advice how young people can find their focus vision for how they can become the kingdom? They could be like the kingdom. <laughs>
1: yeah I, I, I mean it's part of what i talked about today i mean I, honestly I, i'm not trying to sell books but i mean that's why I, that's why i wrote the book you know is to to get that vision and say man it's a, it's a big thing it's not something you can say